Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone and the Libertarian Institute. Today, I am joined by Dr. Peter G. Klein. He is the Carl Menger Research Fellow of the Mises Institute and Chair and Professor of Entrepreneurship at Baylor University's Hanmer School of Business. Dr. Klein, thank you so much for your time. Keith, thanks for having me on. The book is Why Managers Matter. I want to start off with a devil's advocate position. Let me know what, if anything, is wrong with this. Democracy allows the most amount of people to reveal their preferences. Extending equality in voting and democracy to the workplace is therefore vital, not managerialism. What, if anything, is wrong with that? Oh, sure. Well, it's hard to know where to start because I don't agree with either the premise, the first part of the question, or the second part. So... Um, I, I'm sure you've had other guests on your show to talk about issues related to democracy. Democracy is certainly one means of making collective decisions, getting a group to agree on a particular outcome or set of actions that the group might pursue. It's far from the only uh, method of doing so. And certainly there are a lot of uh, you know, advantages and disadvantages of, disadvantages of democracy in the political context. And all of those would apply even more so you know, in sort of the context of a private business. So, um, you know, look, all, all forms of human cooperation, right, involve some degree of autonomy among each individual. You know, we have some amount of decentralization and in the marketplace, we coordinate through prices and exchanges of property rights and so forth. Um, in an organization, we might coordinate through negotiation and through each person having, you know, ownership, so-called, of his own area of activity. But we also need some way to coordinate and sort of bring people together. And again, in the market, it's the price mechanism that does this. In, in politics, it's usually political power, it's propaganda, it's persuasion, it's coercion. So, I mean, what about the workplace? Well, I mean, uh, you know, a work inside a company, we're not exclusively dealing with each other through market mechanisms, though we can try to simulate them to some degree. But certainly there's a role for some coordination on the part of managers, whether it's the CEO and the top executives or middle managers to help to align people's incentives, to get people to coordinate and to cooperate, to do the things that the organization wants to do. You know, democracy in our day has become a kind of filler word, almost a meaningless word for, you know, people and ideas I like. And if you say something I don't like, I say, well, you're against democracy. We certainly don't want to import that kind of fuzzy language and fuzzy thinking into how we understand private organizations. When it comes to the idea of a manager, it's commonly referred to by progressives as mostly a parasitic position. The manager is there to sort of boss around the workers. And if a the manager wasn't there. It's not like the workers would just lay down and die of starvation. The workers would then cooperate. Walk us through the actual contributions that managers make. Yeah. So um, there certainly are many cases when groups of us can cooperate without any kind of hierarchy, without any kind of central control. You know, you and I arranged to do this podcast. You contacted me, invited me on the show. I agreed. You know, there was the exchange of the huge uh, upfront payment and the promise of the ginormous honorarium that's come later, that's going to come later. And, you know, we talked about what I would do and so forth. It's just peer to peer. It's totally horizontal. We don't need a manager. We don't need a boss telling us what to do. Okay, now you want to produce automobiles. 
you know, you want to produce uh, 2022 model year, you know, Toyotas or Teslas or, or Lamborghinis or whatever. Imagine trying to do that where each individual involved in the process is completely autonomous and is negotiating day by day, minute by minute, you know, on, okay, what are you going to do? How many, how many, uh, you know, chassis are you going to bring into this space that we shared? How many engines are you going to put in the chassis? And at what speed is that going to take place? I mean, it's very difficult when you have a, a process that involves a lot of coordination. People have to agree on what to do. They have to agree on how it should be done. They have to agree on each person's contribution. They have to get the contributions to line up. Again, think about, you know, the classic Henry Ford style assembly line. Right, all the different steps need to be synchronized. They need to match up both physically and temporally to be able to produce cars in an effective manner. Doing that where each employee, sorry, where each individual, each human being involved is negotiating moment by moment with every other human being involved. You know, you'd spend all of your time bargaining, negotiating, trying to figure things out. You would never actually produce any cars. I mean, again, now think about you and three or four of your friends Hey, let's go out to lunch together. Great. We'll meet on the street corner out, you know, outside of our building. How long does it take you to decide which restaurant to go to? Sometimes it takes, you know, 15, 20 minutes. Oh, I don't like Chinese food. Oh, well, I'm in the mood for this. Oh, that upsets my stomach. I'm on a diet, blah, blah, blah. I mean, even just the simplest coordinated acts like picking a restaurant can sometimes be extremely difficult to coordinate without some kind of system. Right now, you could have a, a pre, you could have an arrangement in place. You know, Keith picks the restaurant on Monday. Peter picks the restaurant on Tuesday. Someone else picks the restaurant, you know, on Wednesday. Maybe we agree in advance to a set of rules so that we don't have to negotiate on a case by case, moment by moment basis. But again, it's very difficult to do that for a complicated process like producing cars. What we do instead is, you know, a car entrepreneur approaches me and says, "Look, here's the deal." I'll give you X dollars an hour if you will agree to show up every day and perform the following tasks. Or maybe, hey, here's a range of tasks. You might be asked to perform any one of them on a given day. We won't ask you to do something that's not on the list. You know, that's out of bounds. But within this set, you're not going to know in advance exactly what you're going to do, but you're going to show up. We're going to ask you to do something. If you do it satisfactorily, you'll get X dollars an hour, X dollars a week, whatever. That's a voluntary agreement, right? There's no coercion. There's no exploitation. There's no um, you know, loss of one's humanity or human dignity. It's just a convenient, convenient way to organize complicated production processes. That entrepreneur maybe does that for a lot of individuals. And that involves in a much smoother process, less negotiation, less arguing, less writing contracts. And that's, in fact, the way in a modern industrial economy, we produce most goods and services. The book is Why Managers Matter, The Perils of the Bossless Company. Where is the best place to buy the book? Oh, well, uh, if you go to our publisher, uh, that's Public Affairs, which is a division of the Hachette Group. You can find links to you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all of the ebook, different versions that you might want, uh, Walmart, uh, Apple Play, Apple Music, any, any of the sort of normal outlets uh, are carrying the book. You can buy it from the Mises Institute. Uh, bookstore at Mises.org, but it's available in sort of all of the usual places. Just Google the title and you'll find lots and lots of links. 
So is the fallacy that the uh, progressive generally has is that if I have more influence in the decision-making process, I will have more a uh, higher satisfaction of utility in the outcome of that process. Is that the fallacy? Is that the non sequitur? That's the issue here? Well, I would put it in a, a little bit more of a nuanced way. I mean, you know, this is a book that's aimed at professional managers. It's not a political book, ostensibly, right? It's a practical guide how to be a better manager. It's trying to explain to people how business organization works. And again, what are the strengths and weaknesses of different ways of organizing? So incidentally, we don't claim that flatter structures, that flattening the hierarchy, getting rid of layers of middle management, giving more autonomy to you know, people who are at lower levels of the organizational chart is never a good idea, but that never can work in any circumstances. No, what we argue is that that mode of organizing has many advantages. We can talk about you know, what they might be, but it has many disadvantages as well as you know, was brought out in our, you know, your previous couple of questions. And you know, managers need to think very carefully about whether the uh, benefits of one model outweigh the costs in a particular situation, given our industry, our technology, our institutional environment, and so forth. So you know, the criticism, the fallacy that we are addressing in the book is the belief, the popular claim, that all companies should be as radically decentralized and flat as possible. Now, sometimes that argument is made, the one we criticize, you know, on purely sort of technical grounds for various reasons. People believe that those companies are more efficient, they can produce goods and services more effectively, they can be more innovative, et cetera, et cetera. Now, there is in some of that literature kind of an underlying set of moral or ethical claims. You know, it's sort of assumed often in the background that not only are flatter structures more efficient, from an economic point of view, they're also more just, right? They're also more fair because they give everyone a voice. They are work, you know, that's democracy in the workplace. It doesn't allow the higher level to exploit the lower level and so forth. Again, we think that that set of assumptions is mistaken, right? I mean, it's based on, you know, kind of the, essentially the Marxist idea that value is created only through labor and that management or ownership of capital and so forth is like a tax, you know, that's some surplus that is extracted from the workers. You know, Austrian economics teaches that that view of production, entrepreneurship, resources, uh, you know, efficiency is completely misguided. That's not how the production process works at all. But, you know, even laying that aside, look, I mean, a lot of us have been in situations where we felt abused or exploited or put upon by somebody who had authority over us, maybe a teacher, maybe a, a parent or other relative, maybe someone at the workplace, maybe a boss. You know, that's that's common to any sort of system of human organization. And of course, having a well-functioning managerial hierarchy does not mean, you know, physical, verbal or emotional abuse. It doesn't mean treating people as if they're disposable, you know, yada, yada, yada. But none of that is specific to a managerial setting. You know, that's true, you know, in all kind of uh, you know, human communities. And of course, we think that everyone in a workplace, just like everyone in any other human community, should be treated with dignity and respect and so forth. But it doesn't follow from that, that there's no role for management understood as coordination, direction, establishing rules and procedures, adjudicating disputes, deciding who's going to do what and so forth. Richard Wolf has uh, attempted to analyze and uh, respond to this by saying, well, the 
the employee without the job will starve to death. Whereas Walmart, Amazon, Apple, if one of their employees quits on the margin, well, they'll be more or less unchanged unless it's like Tim Cook or something. Therefore, this is not some voluntary arrangement. This is one group of people using a system of property rights to extract labor from someone else. So is a massive power differential something that could invalidate the legitimacy of a voluntary contract? Well, if, if by power differential, you mean a political power differential, I would say absolutely yes, right? There certainly are managers, there are entrepreneurs, there are business people who take advantage of political connections to, to you know, uh, to, they can exploit those relationships and exercise a form of coercive power or can be aided by coercive power. We call that cronyism or crony capitalism, but I don't believe that kind of power is a, plays a significant role in sort of capitalism or a market-based system per se. Now, it's absolutely correct, Keith, that, you know, if I, you know, I, I am employed by Walmart, right, if Walmart goes bankrupt or if I'm fired from Walmart, that has a really significant effect on me that, you know, there go my wages, that uh, affects my quality of life, you know, in, in a very serious way. Whereas, you know, if I'm a shareholder of Walmart, you know, let's say, you know, I have my uh, savings invested in a diversified portfolio or an index fund or something like that, a very, very tiny percentage of my wealth and maybe any income generated from those investments is due to Walmart specifically, right? That's why people tend to diversify their investment portfolios. So if Walmart goes bankrupt, it has a much smaller impact on an investor than it does on an employee, but, you know, we could think about all of the, you know, so-called stakeholders whose inputs are, you know, part of what a company like Walmart does. There are suppliers. There are, of course, customers. There are people who live in the nearby community. There are uh, competitors. All of those different parties are impacted by Walmart's success or failure. You know, someone who is employed by the firm probably is the most dependent, but so is someone who buys from the firm. You know, if Walmart in my town goes out of business, I live in a small town. There's nothing left but the mom and top mom and pops that people like Richard Wolf prefer, but they charge much higher prices. They have much less variety. I mean, I'd be worse off if I didn't have the option of shopping at a place like Walmart or Amazon. So does that mean that these companies exploit the consumer because the consumer, you know, the consumer's well-being depends a lot on the success of that company? What if I'm a supplier? What if I make something and Walmart is my primary retailer? If Walmart goes out of business, that hurts me too. So anyone who deals with an organization is going to be impacted in different ways by that organization's success or failure. But there's nothing, nothing, there's nothing exploitative about that, right? It simply means that the, the employee has the kind of relationship where a lot of their you know, income depends on the performance of that particular entity. Now, as an aside, this is exactly the reason why worker-owned companies in most cases perform very poorly compared to investor-owned companies, right? A lot of people, the sort of people you're mentioning often say, well, if we got rid of the managers, got rid of the bosses, we would you know, do everything as sort of you know, worker-owned co-ops and there would be no exploitation. The workers would own their own company and you know, own their, they would have the full rights to their own labor. Okay, there's a huge literature on the you know, economics and, and sociology and politics and so forth of cooperatives. And in most cases, cooperatives perform very badly. Why? Because of exactly the problem 
uh, that that you just asked about. So if I am if I work for the cooperative, but I also own the cooperative, right? Then you know my sort of uh, my interests are are split, right? I have a worker interest and I have an owner interest, and they might be at odds with each other. For example, you know, in my capacity as a worker, I would like the firm to pay higher wages and have less in retained earnings, uh, you know, invest less in long-term growth. Maybe if I'm a worker close to retirement, I want the maximum wages. I don't want any investment in R&D or long-term growth. If I'm a younger worker expecting that I'll be with the co-op for a long time, I might prefer a lower wage now in exchange, you know, and more investment so that the firm can be more profitable and pay me higher wages in the future. So there's a conflict between those different types of workers. Um, but in my capacity as an owner, I want wages to be low, right? I want, if I get a dividend, I want a bigger dividend. Uh, if, you, if there are other cooperatives that are owned by consumers, that are owned by suppliers, in those cases, the decision makers wear multiple hats and they all have very different interests depending on lots of, lots of conditions specific to them. That leads to a lot of conflict. It leads to a lot of disagreement. And, you know, you've heard of the famous uh, Hirschman thing, exit, voice, loyalty, right? When I'm tied to the co-op because I earn my livelihood from the co-op, if I disagree with the other shareholders, it's very costly for me to exit. Compare that to Walmart, right? The key decision makers, the shareholders, uh, you know, represented by the board and the board of directors, right? All of the shareholders, number one, they have the same interest, financial returns, right? And number two, you know, if they disagree, it's pretty easy to exit. You just sell your shares, invest in something else. So there's a lot less conflict in deciding what the organization should do when the owners are kind of disinterested, right? They're only owners and they don't have any other relationship with the company. They can Then they can analyze things from a rational, dispassionate point of view. If the decision maker is also the owner, if the decision maker is also the buyer, the shopper, if the decision maker is also the supplier, yeah, now things get messy. Right. Again, doesn't mean that I would never want to buy from a co-op or participate in a co-op. It just means, you know, the benefits have to be really large to overcome the sort of organizational and governance drawbacks that I've just described. It's amazing uh, the the people that offer me products and services voluntarily, they're evil exploiters who I need to hate. And the people who offer me nothing but the sounds of economic illiteracy, those are my comrades. And we got to go burn down some stores that uh, that people work at and uh, and fight for this revolution. Ludwig von Mises made the argument that every time, or not every time, when the capitalists, so to speak, when these managers take money and allocate it towards investment. The investment allows the workers to be more productive, which increases their wages. Therefore, the workers, as if managers don't work, therefore, the workers benefit from the company's investment. How does that work? Yeah. So, I mean, think of it this way. Uh, imagine, oh, I don't know, you're, you know, you're in the construction industry and, you know, your job has to do with, you know, digging the foundation for a new house or a building. Uh, you know, one man with a shovel or one woman with a shovel, right, can, you know, dig out a certain amount of dirt per day, but, you know, not a lot. You know, there's only so many hours you can do that. It's backbreaking labor and so forth. So, you know, the value of that person's labor to the house builder or the construction company, that's well, not zero, but, you know, it's not that much, right? So how much would a company be willing to pay a person to dig holes with a shovel 
Well, there's a technical term for that. Economists call it the marginal revenue product, or to be precise, the discounted marginal revenue product, which is, you know, how much additional revenue does the does the firm receive from employing one more unit of that person's labor? So if you generate, you know, $10 an hour worth of value to the employer, again, that's the value of your digging combined with all the other inputs that go into producing house. On the margin, if that adds $10 per hour worth of value to the company, then the employer would be willing to pay you up to $10 and, and they would make, you know, they would have something left over. That would be a win for the company. But now imagine you've got a, I was about to say a steam shovel, but that's the old archaic term, you know, whatever, whatever you call those machines, backhoes and, you know, those construction machines. We, we uh, recently did some work in our house, in, including putting in a swimming pool in the backyard. I mean, they dug the hole in one day, you know, with one machine, a few guys. And there was one guy sitting in that backhoe type machine, you know, pulling the controls and he could dig a huge hole in two or three hours. Right. So he, his labor is much more valuable to the company because it is combined with this machine. Right. And, and technical know-how and other complementary inputs like design, you know, computer aided design and other manufactured, you know, wireframe and other things that go into the construction of a project like that. So the value of our labor to people who might be willing to pay us for it depends on what kind of tools and equipment and machines and so forth we have available to work with. So as companies invest more in capital, right, labor becomes more valuable when you can combine it with capital goods that are more sophisticated, more advanced than if you have the labor without those capital goods or with much simpler capital goods, you know, like hand tools compared to industrial machines. When it comes to who is the boss's boss, in other words, Mises would say that the consumers are sort of the boss of the bosses. I mean, Sears was like this huge store, Blockbuster. We would go all the time. If you would have told me there wouldn't be a Blockbuster when we used to wait 20 minutes in line at every Blockbuster, I, I wouldn't have uh, been able to believe it. So how can uh, employees and consumers, let's say there's a terrible set of managers and a company that's being immoral, exploitative, unjust. Say they're teaching critical race theory and discriminating against people based on race. How can consumers and employees harness power to uh, sort of have some leverage or have some checks and balances in uh, these voluntary arrangements? Well, you, you answered the question with your, with your setup uh, already that, um, look, each of us as a consumer we have the ability and we have the legal authority and some people might even say moral responsibility, right? To, to, to buy or not buy, depending on not only, you know, does the product work, but maybe other things that we care about as far as the company is concerned. Likewise with employment, right? I mean, uh, I can choose to be employed for company X or company Y. If I'm unhappy with some practices of company Y for ethical reasons or for whatever reasons, my best move is not to engage with company Y. These are all voluntary, you know, contractual in the broad sense interactions. Same thing with suppliers and trading partners and so forth, right? And, you know, history is littered with, you know, the, the I don't know what's the right metaphor, the dead bodies, the carcasses of companies that for one reason or another, right, were not producing goods and services that consumers wanted, were not producing them in a way that was attractive 
and satisfactory to consumers. We're not treating their workers in a way that workers were willing to sign those employment contracts and remain as employees, right? So, um, you know, when people talk about, you know, bringing democracy into the marketplace or the workplace, I mean, that's the kind of democracy uh, that, that works well in that context, you know, voting with your feet, right? It's not necessarily that you go and, you know, yell at the manager that, you know, you don't agree with the manager's politics or something. But if you don't like what the company is doing, you, you no longer engage with that company. You find a different company to engage with the same way, you know, it works that way with voluntary interactions at any level. And what about if there's such a large initial investment that competitors would have to make to actually deal? For example, if PayPal starts fining people for spreading misinformation, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase allegedly told Kanye West, you uh, spoke ill of a demographic. So uh, in November, you have to have your stuff out of here. If Twitter bans someone like Stefan Molyneux or Alex Jones, can't tell uh, his side of the story. What if there's companies that are so big, there are not viable competitors? Then what does the employee, what does the consumer do in that case? Yeah, well, I, I think that question is not, it's more general than the specific question about employee-employer relations, right? I mean, this is this is a sort of you know, version of the modern monopoly by entry barriers kind of question, right? Can a firm be so large, uh, you know, it's so far down the uh, cost, uh, average cost curve or whatever that it, you know, produces at a low cost because it made these big upfront initial investments or it has some other, you know, it has, it has a brand name reputation. It has connections with other parties. They're just so great, you know, for, for any viable, no, no, no competitor can overcome those. And therefore, you know, uh, there's, there's no effective remedy for consumers, maybe for workers either. I mean, when I discuss this, these kinds of issues in my class, especially in the technology context, I always start by showing them an article from 1998 uh, that was published in, um, I think it was The Guardian by, uh, um, or maybe it was The Observer by uh, Victor Keegan, titled, it was 1998, and it's titled, Will MySpace Ever Lose Its Monopoly? And, you know, there were there were news articles, analyses around the same time, you know, who can ever dislodge Nokia? Nokia is the cell phone king. You know, it's got brand recognition. Uh, it's got these vast scale economies from the number of phones it produces. No one can ever dislodge it from the top of the phone business. You know, BlackBerry, Blockbuster, we could go through the list, right? All of those companies, and many of them are tech, but not all of them, all of them had exactly the same sort of, you know, so-called dominant market position in their in their time that Twitter or JP Morgan Chase or PayPal or whatever have in our time, right? And yet, even despite the fact that many of them had quite cozy relationships with, you know, different elements of the state, I mean, they're not here anymore, right? They're gone. Why? Because... Technology changes very rapidly. Um, consumer preferences, consumers can be fickle. I mean, it used to be said that, well, what about platforms like Twitter because of this, what they call the you know, so-called network effects? You know, you only want to be on a platform that a lot of other people are also on. So once a platform gets to be a certain size, you know, no one will ever want to switch from that platform to another platform. Okay, well, I mean, tell that to TikTok. Tell that to whatever is, you know, Telegram or Signal or whatever is the next communications platform that you and I 
can't even identify now because it hasn't been invented yet, or it's you know some teenager in a garage is running it, uh, right? So there's absolutely no reason that all of the companies that you mentioned, who who admittedly are engaged in a lot of behavior that people find ethically questionable, right, can be swept aside. Now, again, to the extent that they are protected by the state, that, you know, a, a state-granted entry barrier is qualitatively different from one that would emerge sort of, you know, on the free market. I think the financial sector is kind of the best example because, you know, the big banks, the ones that are, you know, the Fed's so-called primary dealers, preferred dealers, you know, they have all kinds of regulatory benefits that make it difficult for smaller, newer firms to compete. Although keep in mind, you know, PayPal was a was a garage startup, you know, at one point. Now PayPal is sort of part of the establishment. But who's to say that an alternative kind of, uh, you know, crypto or who knows what it might be, an al alternative kind of system for payment processing and for all the other things that you're talking about, you know, could arise. Again, just to clarify one point, not to get too deep into the weeds, but when people make this argument, they forget that not all products are identical. When they say, oh, Twitter has however many millions of users, no one compete can effectively compete. What they mean is no one could start, you know, could create a product that is almost exactly like Twitter and call it something else. Why would people switch to it? It's no different. Okay, but mm -hmm. you know, when Instagram came online, I guess maybe Facebook was the dominant platform at that time. You know, Instagram was different. It, it, it did a different thing than Facebook does. You know, TikTok, again, is Snapchat. Those are, they're not exactly like email or social, the existing social media platforms. And, you know, maybe it's the same users, but maybe it's a whole different class of users. You know, younger people or older people or people in country X or Y, who knows? that are attracted to this new thing that's not exactly the same as the old one, but is enough of a substitute that it drives people away. So I don't think I could start a Walmart that's exactly like Walmart and compete with them, at least not right away. But there are all kinds of online and physical retailers that are doing great and that someday might become the next Walmart and Walmart might be the blockbuster that we're talking about in 20 years, 10 years, maybe even sooner. If you were going to start an economics college and you needed to hire someone to be the manager of all of the professors and more or less uh, the uh, em employees of the place, what are some criteria that you would look for in this managers? What are some traits you would look for to find a good manager of something like this? Gosh, that's a great question. And uh, I mean, of course, I would choose myself, especially if, you know, that means I get a really good parking space and I get a luxury suite at the football stadium. Uh, no, I mean, you know, educational institutions are a little bit weird. I mean, they're a lot weird, let's face it. And so, you know, they're, they're similar to, but not exactly the same as a lot of other kinds of organizations. Most of them are nonprofits or, you know, state owned, which makes things a little bit more complicated. And, you know, the sorts of goods and services that they produce are different. You know, they're producing knowledge. They're providing services to train students and make students think differently. And they're, you know, producing new research ideas. All of those things uh, are very difficult to measure compared to, you know, making cars. Uh, nonprofits don't have a financial bottom line like for-profit ventures do to let you know whether in fact they're doing what they set out to do. So, but, but leaving all those things aside, I, you know, that that's, and it's actually a good 
good case study for us to discuss. Um, one of the things we emphasize in the book, one concept we emphasize that, that gives some guidance on whether, you know, uh, on the pros and cons of flatter versus more hierarchical structures is what we call interdependence or interdependency, right? That's the extent to which different tasks, different roles, different jobs, different functions within the organization are, you know, dependent on each other. Right. So imagine that we have an educational institution that produces, uh, you know, specialized certificates. So you take managerial economics or business strategy or entrepreneurship with Peter Klein. You know, you take a three hour course or you take a, a nine hour sequence with Peter Klein, all on that specialized topic. And then you get a little certificate that says you, you know, you survived Peter Klein's class. And then, you know, um, uh, Joe Salerno is teaching something on monetary economics and uh, I don't know, pick your favorite celebrity is teaching one on the entertainment industry or whatever. Everybody's doing their own specialized thing. What the university provides is, you know, a building, you know, a shared physical campus, some overhead, you know, electricity and internet. Maybe there's a library and a student financial aid office that are sort of shared services that each of the different certificate, you know, programs can sort of draw on, you know, in a model like that, there's really very little need for central coordination. And it wouldn't work that way anyway, because, you know, the, the, the manager, the president of the university or the provost or the dean, whatever, that person is not going to know as much about my topic as I do. That person is not going to know as much about Joe's topic as he does. So it would make little sense for the curriculum to be designed at the president's office and then I just, you know, we, the professors just execute. It wouldn't make sense for the provost to write the exams and do the grading, okay? So in, in a situation like that, there's very little interdependence across the different programs, you know, certificate programs, whatever. And therefore there's not much need for central coordination. A, a flatter structure would probably be best. Okay, however, right? What if this university is offering a bachelor's degree and a bachelor's degree has these different content requirements. You got to have so many hours of math and science and English and social studies and et cetera. And all the different pieces sort of have to fit together. You know, like there's an economics major with intro, intermediate, advanced. The advanced class is supposed to build on the intro. Sorry, the intermediate class builds on the intro class and the advanced class builds on the intermediate class. And, you know, monetary economics builds on value theory or whatever. Now you have more interdependence across instructors and across classes. The pieces all have to sort of fit together. So then the boss, the manager might want to implement more constraints. Okay, Klein, you know, here's your topic, but we want you to cover these subjects. We want you to start here and end here so you can hand the students off to Salerno who will then build upon what you did. Right. And same thing for Salerno. So now you need a little bit more constraint on the individual, a little bit more centralization. And again, you know, automobile production may be a lot more centralized production. It just sort of depends on conditions. So what I would want in my organization is a manager who understands this principle, right, who can think carefully about interdependence and can design systems and processes and structures. It's not command and control. As we point out in the book, good management is not looking over somebody's shoulder and telling them what to do. Rather, it's creating the environment within which that person can take advantage of 
his or her Hayekian tacit knowledge and be motivated by, you know, feelings of self-worth on the job and so forth, but in a way where different activities are channeled so that they match up and they work together to produce the organization's overall goal. What are the most effective ways that managers can motivate employees? Oh, well, uh, there's a variety of different ways, right? I mean, uh, sometimes giving managers, uh, sorry, giving employees a lot of space, right? It, it can work. Some employees prefer more guidance, you know, they want more mentoring, more coaching. I think everyone wants clear and transparent rules, right? Here's the job description. Here are the things you might be asked to do. Here are the things you will never be asked to do, right? If you have a conflict with your supervisor, here's what you do. Here's who you go to. If you have a conflict with a coworker, here's uh, where you go. Here's how your pay will be determined, right? If there's if there are performance incentives, here's what they are, and here's how we measure them. So you sort of know how you're doing, right? But you know, if it's a more holistic kind of assessment, then there needs to be enough transparency so that employees believe that they are being evaluated fairly and justly, right? So you know, transparent rules, consistent policies and procedures, and then the right balance of, you know, uh, uh, a lot of space with strong incentives and more constraints, uh, but more guidance and coaching is, you know, what the, what the manager wants to look for. The reason I ask is because I remember working a job that I just really was not that interested in, needed the money, it gave me the hours I wanted, and I just thought that this job is not that uh, it is not very meaningful until the bot until our manager, our branch manager got fired and then was replaced. And then the new guy made work uh, a fun place to come to. And I worked there uh, much longer. So I really had to experience it in real time. It was just day and night. You walk into the place and then the, the layout was different. Like all these small cost things, remembering people's names, having meetings saying, Hey, I don't care if you have your phones out. I'm not going to be a stickler for it. That small thing made the rest of made all eight hours a day so much, uh, so much easier. So that is why I uh, really uh, th think uh, books like this are vitally important because I, I, I hear it all the time that managers are simply the parasites stopping us from achieving our, uh, our ends. When it comes to historical narratives that people's have, that people have about the, workers versus the managers, they will say, well, before unions and before things like OSHA, there was a lot of worker and employee mistreatment because they're in a very vulnerable situation. Uh, are working conditions better today as a cause or result of unions and state regulations? No, uh, working conditions are a lot better today because of technology, because of technological improvement, because of more, uh, you know, op more open markets. Uh, people having more alternatives uh, among which they can choose. I mean, almost all of the health and safety regulations, like the ones you mentioned, if you look carefully at the case histories, if you study how they played out in action, and if you even think about them theoretically, right, they're almost all cases in which some firms were trying to impose differential costs on other firms that they didn't want to compete with, right? So, you know, food safety uh, the, the, in, in the U.S., the... Uh, First, the predecessor to the Food and Drug Administration, you know, this in the late 19th century, um, it was there was uh, uh, there were some controversies related to you know the safety, particularly of, of processed meat, 
And so you had a few entrepreneurs like uh, Gustava Swift in Chicago who were figuring out how to create large scale industrial and highly efficient you know, meat slaughtering facilities. And so they developed not only the technology for you know, the slaughterhouses in Chicago, but also the relevant, the rest of the supply chain, right? So they developed, they had relationships with railroads, they developed systems of refrigerated, you know, refrigerated boxcars where you could get the meat to the local, you know, to the retailer at a much, much lower wholesale price, right? Taking advantage of this more mechanized, industrialized kind of system. Guess what happened? The local butcher shops could not compete. The mom and pops couldn't compete on price. What did they do? They went to their Congress people. They went to the media. They agitated. They said, oh, this industrial meat coming from Chicago, it's not safe. It's filled with, you know, bacteria or whatever. There was no scientific evidence whatsoever that the industrial meat was any less safe than the meat from the local butcher shops. It was just a lot less expensive and consumers were buying it and the local butcher shops were being pressured uh, were being squeezed financially. So they said, oh, we want inspections. We want all these rules. We want, uh, uh, you know, uh, inspectors and, and other kinds of guidelines and so forth for meatpacking. Oh, by the way, it only applies to firms above a certain size. It doesn't apply to us. You know, we, we local butcher shops, we're totally fine, right? But you got to inspect these big guys. It was just an attempt to increase the production cost of the big guys who were out competing the ones who were lobbying for protection. Uh, the, the economist Bruce Yandel calls this a bootlegger and Baptist coalition. So you had the sort of the sort of do-gooder rationale, people in the media, activists, whatever, oh, we got to protect the public from tainted meat. But it was really private financial interests uh, wanting to impose high costs on these new efficient meat packers. You find that in almost every area of health and safety regulation, consumer product protection, a lot of environmental regulation and so forth. So no, the reason the workplace, you know, the reason we don't send, you know, small children into the mines, right, to dig for coal all day, it's not because of unions, it's not because of child labor legislation, it's because we're a wealthier society now. We, we, we don't need to do that, right? We can afford to have our children in school. We don't need, we're not operating in the subsistence level where we need, where the most effective use of, you know, a child's time is, you know, digging coal in the mine. It's techno technological improvement, it's economic growth, it's freer markets, it's capitalism. Those are the things that improve health and safety conditions in the work, in the workplace, not unions and not legislators. You are the Carl Menger Research Fellow of the Ludwig von Mises Institute. What, if anything, can Carl Menger teach us about what it means to be a good manager? Oh, that's, well, uh, that's a good question. Menger didn't write a lot directly on business organization, but there's certainly ideas from his theories, right? <laughs> Carl Menger is the founder of the Austrian school. He, he sort of introduced the modern way of thinking about subjective value, how prices are determined, um, how the economy's capital structure is laid out. So a knowledge of basic Austrian economics, the basic principles laid out by Karl Menger are extremely useful for practicing managers, understanding how the economy works, understanding, for example, that consumer valuation, as you hinted at before, is ultimately you know, the engine that drives the train of profitability. 
knowing that what workers may prefer or not prefer in one situation or another is also subjective and contingent and may depend on uh, you know, particular institutional conditions, specific traits of employees and so forth. So the basic ideas of Austrian value, price, capital theory can be extremely useful for the manager to know. Does the manager need to read Karl Menger you know, in the original, well, I guess the original would be in German. Does the English language manager need to read Karl Menger and Mises Human Action and all of Peter Klein's books in detail? Well, I mean, I would hope that they would, but uh, no, I, I suppose that these principles can be intuited and a lot of good, a lot of managers are good at intuiting these basic principles, but it always helps to have a more explicit knowledge, you know, which coincidentally leads me to point out that, uh, the managers in question could pick up a copy of Why Managers Matter, The Perils of the Bossless Company from their favorite bookseller, and that will answer all their questions and increase their firm's profitability uh, probably tenfold in the first week. I have sort of a uh, back and forth with uh, one of the Black Lives Matter accounts on Twitter, and uh, th they were saying what people need if you want to empower a population say, whether it's the working masses or whether it's a certain demographic, what you have to do is you have to get people in political office that are the same race as you, the same gender as you, the same age as you, the same income as you. Uh, this is completely different from the ideas of like Booker T. Washington, who said, what you want is a capital theory. You want to increase your skill set. It's not about uh, getting people elected in office who might perpetuate terrible ideas. So when it comes to what can individuals do uh, to increase their skill set so they could either be a good manager, so they could uh, be an employee that has a lot of leverage and can find a good manager at different places, what can people do to increase their skill set? Yeah, uh, uh, be, uh, increase their education, increase their practical training, have more experience, uh, experiment with different types of professional experience. Now, you know, there's a whole issue about the returns to education. Should you do formal schooling? Should you pursue a degree, a graduate degree, whatever? I'm not going to wade into that here. But I mean, some kind of education in the broad sense of knowledge acquisition is one of the best ways that you can increase the value of your labor, right? Finding the right setting. Again, as we, as you know, my, my shovel example illustrated, it's not all me and what I know. It's, it's with whom I am partnered, right? Other workers, capital goods, machines, tools. I've got to find the right, you know, organizational setting in which the, the knowledge that I have, the skills that I have, and the knowledge and skills that I can acquire uh, over time as I become more effective. I need an environment in which those, those things are particularly valuable. You know, I myself would not be able to earn a high wage in the construction industry, whether I'm using a shovel or one of those machines, because mm -hmm. that's just not a good match for my capabilities, my interests, my background, my experiences. But there are other lines of work like teaching or speaking or writing or whatever, where, you know, uh, whether my skills are, are, you know, are impressive or not, they're at least more suited for that line of work than for some other line of work. So figuring out what you can do well is something important. There is some literature on uh, entrepreneurs, by the way, people who uh, create new products and services, people who create new business ventures, who operate companies directly, right? Many times, one of the best predictors of success in that line of work is not just the depth of knowledge, but the variety of knowledge. So people who have tried a lot of different jobs and have played a lot of different roles in companies 
tend to, to uh, develop that more holistic perspective that is particularly useful in starting or running a company. Final question, Dr. Klein, thank you so much for your time. How can we empirically test whether or not a worker cooperative or a managerial organization is more efficient or more desirable? Yeah, well, I mean, we can do the standard kind of historical or empirical studies, qualitative or quantitative, right? Looking at different types of firms and trying to figure out which ones which ones perform better. You know, that's not a trivial exercise uh, because, uh, you know, sort of the, the thought experiment is, okay, if we take, you know, Walmart and it's exactly the way Walmart is in every way except that it's worker owned, how does that compare to the actual Walmart? Or we take a co-op and we say, imagine everything's exactly the same, but now it's an investor-owned firm and not a co-op. You know, that's not a, that other things equal comparison. We can do it in our minds. You know, there are statistical tricks to help you sort those things out in a, in a quantitative data set, but we don't observe them in reality. We observe that some firms are co-ops and some firms are not. By the way, the fact that very few firms are cooperatives, even though co-ops receive a host of special advantages, tax, lower tax rate, uh, many subsidies, antitrust immunity, and so forth, suggests that, you know, there are not many cases where the cooperative form of organization is the most efficient one. But I think it's a very interesting question. Also, within a class of companies like among investor-owned firms, are flatter hierarchies better than less flat hierarchies? That's something that we can study historically, empirically. And there's really not very much evidence for the claim that flatness is always or almost always better, which is the sort of argument that we critique in the book. The book is Why Managers Matter, The Perils of the Bossless Company. Dr. Klein, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Keith.